Every major city had one, that iconic department store where a pilgrimage to that massive multi-story menagerie of merchandise was a rite of passage. Remember, some people would get all dressed up to make that long journey for a special day at, will you fill in the blank? In Atlanta, it was riches. In New York City, Gimbel's or Macy's. In Macon, Mansour's. In New Orleans, Maison Blanche. In Chicago, Marshall Fields. In Boston, Filene's. In Houston's, Foley's. In smaller cities across the land, J.C. Penney's. But for me, it was Wanamaker's. In Center City, Philadelphia, when you got lost, your parents told you to meet them at the Eagle statue. It was started by the marketing genius John Wanamaker, a deeply religious man and longtime Sunday school superintendent at Bethany Presbyterian in Philadelphia. He was the first to put a fixed price on everything in the store. He invented the price tag and created the first flyer for a newspaper. He also created the money back guarantee, which is now the industry standard. He made shopping an experience and made his store a destination with an in-store restaurant, a monorail through the atrium in the kids' section, a holiday light show, and the world's largest pipe organ. He also refused to advertise on Sundays. When people discovered that his advertising promises were true, his business boomed. The concept of truth in advertising earned him the public's trust, which he never lost. So it made perfect sense that in one of my senior marketing classes at Wharton, we were charged with getting an interview with the head of Wanamakers at the time. We tried everything. We called. We wrote letters long before emails. We tried every Wharton and business contact we had as college seniors. We even just tried showing up at their offices, but to no avail. We could not get our foot in the door. We'd exhausted all our options. You ever been there? All our plans seemed not to be working. Then I went away for the weekend with a freshman that I'd been tutoring and taking notes for as a part-time job. She invited me to visit with her family in Cinnaminson, New Jersey. She told me to bring some church clothes, and I did. When we got up Sunday morning, she said, we're going to Sunday school before church. Now, I had not agreed to that. Church was fine, but Sunday school? Come on. I was a senior in college. I wasn't going to go to Sunday school, but she insisted. So there I was, begrudgingly sitting with her in Sunday school. But then there was a great lesson by an amazing teacher, and I had to go up to him afterwards and thank him. She came up next to me and introduced me to her longtime Sunday school teacher, and in that conversation I learned where he had worked for many years. You guessed it, Wanamaker's. We got the interview the next week. I had tried all of my sources except one. Yet in God's goodness and grace, God was better to me than I deserved. Why is it we so often forget to consult God about things? It's good to ask God for help. Even the animals seem to lift prayers and praise to God. Today we join David at a place where God has been better to him than he deserved. He's just successfully completed the front nine of life, and he's making the turn, and this is not a lynx course. He has stopped in the clubhouse that he has built out of cedar and begins to settle in for a beverage and a kosher hot dog. Thinking about the second half of his life and what it will mean, then David makes his plan for the back nine as we hear the good news from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. 
Now, folks, it's a long passage, so let me invite you to count how many times God says the word I in this passage as God reminds David how he got to be sitting in the clubhouse in the first place. Now, when the king was settled in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, see, now I'm living in a house of cedar, but the Ark of the Covenant stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, go do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, following the sheep to be prince over my people. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up for your offspring after you. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use with blows inflicted by human beings. But... I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the good news according to 2 Samuel 7. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, help us to begin our day and to begin our work by consulting you before we jump into our own plans. Amen. Where do you find yourself today on the golf course of life? Maybe you're just starting out, ready to tee it up on the first hole. Or you could still be on the practice green or the putting green, the practice tee or the putting green. Or maybe you feel like you're stuck in a sand trap where you keep trying to get out and the ball just keeps rolling back in. Or you're in the middle of the fairway trying to judge the distance to what is next for you. Or you're lining up that putt that God would gladly give you if you just asked. Or you might be looking for your ball in the woods, having gotten a bit off course. Or maybe you're fearlessly finishing the back nine. Wherever you are in the course of life, are you feeling settled or unsettled these days? David was settled, we're told, settled in his own fine house of cedar, at rest and at peace with all his enemies. Life was good. He's making the turn from what Richard Rohr calls the first half of life to the second half of life. And there, sitting in the clubhouse, David decides, I have such a nice house, and God's living in a tent. The Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. 
I'm going to build God a house. When we feel settled, it is far easier to ponder important questions about the future. What can I do for someone else? What can I do for someone else who might not be as settled as I am today? When life is pretty settled, it's a good time to sit back and think, what might be the legacy that I want to leave? What can I do that will last beyond me as we all chase hope for the future? Richard Rohr reminds us that in the first half of life, our task is to create the proper container for our life as we answer three essential questions of identity, security, and intimacy. What makes me significant? Identity. How can I support myself? Security. And who will go with me? Intimacy. Those questions keep us busy in the first half of life, the front nine of life, this time of acquisition and accomplishment, trying to build the container of our lives. Rohr says in the second half of life, quite simply, our desire and effort every day is to pay back, to give back to the world a bit of what we have received, which is what David is seeking to do as he sits settled in his comfortable clubhouse. And when the people have built a good container for their lives, they're able to contain more and more, more and more truth, more and more neighbors, more and broader vision for the world, more and more of a mysterious and outpouring God in their lives, filling the emptiness of their container. Rohr states, in the second half of life, our concern is not so much to have what you love, but to love what you have right here, right now, to experience contentment. Are you settled or unsettled? David has made it through the first half of his life, and then with little reflection or consultation outside his own brain, David decides what he is going to do next. I'm going to build God a house. And then he just tells his plan to the prophet. I'm settled and it's time to help God be settled too here in Jerusalem. I really think David's heart's in the right place as he considers giving something back to God. But that very night, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Nathan and God emphasized all that God had done to bring David to this place. David, I remember you before you were king. You weren't even a shepherd yet. You were just a sheep and I chose you. And I delivered you, and I brought you to this settled place. You didn't build this house by yourself. I built you up and gave you all that you have. You are not a self-made man. None of us are. God tells David through Nathan, you are not going to build me a house. I'm a mobile God. I will not be restricted to one place. I go where the people are. Your plan was to build me a house? But did you ask me if it was a good plan before you started? Why is it that we so easily get ahead of ourselves and we forget to ask God for guidance? Friends, God is a good caddy, but we so often decide we know the right club to use and don't ask. God tells David, I'm going to build you a house, and of your house there will be no end. That is our hope for the future, the house of David from whence the Messiah comes. God promises David, I will not take my steadfast love from your family as I took it from Saul. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. An Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, claimed that God's unconditional promise to David here in 2 Samuel 7 is the most crucial theological statement in the entire Old Testament. For God says, I will not leave you or forsake you. That has got to be reassuring to David. And rather than push back, still wanting to build God a house, we're told that David's response is to go and to sit before the Lord, to sit before the Ark of the Covenant in that tent and humbly ask God, 
Who am I that you would invest in someone like me? You're better to me, God, than I deserve. The covenant of God is no longer conditional based on our obedience, but overflows from God's steadfast love. And it's easier to make the turn of the second half of life with a promise like that from God that has already been given to us. Are you settled or unsettled? I read this week of two women who were feeling pretty unsettled. Tia Wimbush and Susan Ellis had been co-workers in the same department at Children's Health Care of Atlanta for 10 years. Anytime their paths crossed, they exchanged pleasantries but never really got to know each other until a manager at Children's connected the two of them, helping them to know they were on similar paths after they learned that both their husbands had suffered kidney failure and each of the men needed a transplant in order to survive. One day, these two women were visiting in the restroom of all places there at Children's about their struggle to find a suitable donor for each of their husbands. They had prayed and searched for that perfect match, and there in that restroom, they discovered that they might be the potential match for the other's husband. They started thinking, what if we can donate our kidneys to each other's husbands? And miraculously, they were both a perfect match. And so last March, they gave up a kidney for the other's husband. They both understood the questions that lead us into the second half of life. Who am I? I'm a donor who could save the life of another. That's my identity. How can I support myself through sacrificing and supporting others? Real security. And who will be my companions on this journey? We've created lifelong friends, they said. We've become family. We took a leap of faith in doing this, and now we are forever connected, always rooting each other on in both the recovery process and in this second chance of life. The second half of life, as Rohr calls it. And the second half often comes after a fall, after something has not worked out, a job loss, an illness, a failed relationship, a missed putt, a pesky water hazard, Roar asserts that people who look to God in these difficult times don't fall down, but can end up falling upward. The ladies said they hoped their stories would inspire others to donate. They said you learn a lot about yourself and your resiliency, your faith, your friends and your family in times like these. And when you think about what we were doing, it's actually pretty scary. It was a big deal. But we just had a peace in that moment. One of them said, I just felt the magnificence of God. The surgery, Wimbush says, also transformed her husband. She said, this is the happiest I've ever seen him because he got this second chance at life. And this chance is to be fully present for me and my boys, and it just means the world to us. The chance to be fully present is the second half of life. Starting to live into the second half of life is not about age, but about a willingness to turn our lives Godward. Are you ready to make that turn? Are you ready to make the turn to trust God's promise of the future for you? God does not just want us to leave a legacy, but God asked David to lead a legacy. The legacy of John Wanamaker is far greater than just a department store. He was known for his philanthropy to programs to aid the poor, which still support the homeless population of Philadelphia today. In 1908, he financially supported a woman named Anna Jarvis, who had the idea for designating the second Sunday in May as Mother's Day. In fact, the earliest Mother's Day ceremonies were held across the street from Wanamaker's. And interestingly enough, 
John Wanamaker's son, Rodman Wanamaker, gathered a group of golfers in 1916 for a luncheon in the Wanamaker store in New York City, where he suggested they found a group for golfers that you may have heard of, the PGA. Wanamaker donated a silver trophy, a purse of $2,580, and agreed to pay the expenses of the competitors for what was to be the first PGA championship. And now you know why they call the trophy the Wanamaker Cup. Tomorrow we will gather here in this sanctuary to mourn the loss of and celebrate the life of Gene Siller. He was married to Bo Davidson's granddaughter, Ashley. He was a loving husband and father, a great friend, a member of the PGA. His life was cut far too short on the 10th green just after the turn. He had so much ahead of him. We pray for his family and lift them up today. What legacy will you lead from your life? God's promise to David is what God wants, is that God wants to plant us, to plant us so that we can bear fruit. To plant is to lay our plan at the foot of the cross and then ask God for direction. Might you do that today? Perhaps you might want to write down your plans and offer them to God at the foot of the cross this day. So, do you feel settled or unsettled? If you're feeling settled, perhaps it's time to have a conversation with God about the kind of legacy you want to lead in this second half of life. If you're feeling unsettled or have recently fallen, May you seek to fall upward into the arms of a loving God who is better to us than any of us deserve. For you can never fall lower than the open hand of God. May you live into the riches of God's abundant mercy and love this day and always. Amen.